Morning glory and evening grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, and it's the 15th hour of 15 hours of radio. And what a week it's been. The Cardinals have gathered in their pre-conclave general assemblies. Rand Paul has reinvigorated the Senate institution of the filibuster. So it's the perfect time to talk about Herodotus, of course. And to do that, I am joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue always covers the current events in the first segment and then a great book or books in the next three. Dr. Arn, how are you? I'm very well. How are you, Hugh? Good. What do you make of this, this extraordinary series of events? And I want to talk about each of them, but some weeks are better than others when it comes to interesting things. Isn't it, though? Uh, the, the Rand Paul thing is terribly interesting, and uh, I, I salute him. Uh, he was criticized sharply in the Wall Street Journal on Wednesday. And uh, I was very surprised about that. But all he's saying is the government ought not to be killing us without a process. Right. You know, I, I talked to, to uh, John Eastman, your friend and mine, about this, because we understand the use of deadly force against Americans abroad who are unlawful combatants without a court order. But but it is different on our soil, Larry Arn. It is. It is. And, you know, in the case of an extreme or an imminent threat, uh, who knows, you know, what might be the right thing to do, but a doctrine that the president has the authority to kill an American citizen on his own authority with a drone, that's a remarkable doctrine. What would you think? Lincoln used extraordinary powers in an extraordinary time, but I'm not sure that he ever articulated doctrines about their use. What do you think about that? Well, in his address to Congress in 1861, uh, after the Congress had come back into session, he justified the suspension of the writ of the habeas corpus. And he did go at length into the parameters of that, and he tied himself to the provision of the Constitution that said that the Congress can do that, and the Congress was not in session, and parts of the Union were breaking up. And so he said that he had the authority to do it for a limited time, and then he asked the Congress to ratify what he had done when it came back to end of session, which was only 60 days later, I think, if memory serves. And, and, and from that, you draw what parallel for today that you would expect President Obama to send a statement about his previous uses and why they were justified and how he would limit them himself? Yes, and, and yes. also make himself subject to law on an ongoing basis. That's interesting. So if you, if you think about it, the Constitution is written in 1787, and, and the next year, George Washington is the president, two years later, and a bunch of stuff is going on that the Constitution doesn't describe. And so the executive power, especially, is something different from the Constitution. You have to act. And great executives, I'm actually meant to be writing a book right now called What Good's a Constitution, named after an essay written by Winston Churchill in 1936, critical of Franklin Roosevelt. And Churchill was a very active executive, but he always made a very large effort to show that what he was doing was lawful and was not of his own volition entirely or alone. And so what that's what executives do. And so if, if, you know, Mr. Holder's comments, which if you parse them out, uh, are not as bad as they might be, there's a defense of them in the Wall Street Journal, as I say, this week, then, then what he might have led with instead is, 
it would be a grievous thing ever to shoot down an American citizen, and we mustn't do that. And if it were ever necessary because of some terrible urgency, that would have to be speedily justified before other authorities than the executive branch. He didn't say that. No, he didn't. He said nothing until today or till Wednesday when Ted Cruz, under close questioning, obliged him to at least admit to the outer limit of their power, which is very far out. Now, Rand Paul, in this now, I think, famous filibuster and perhaps even a turning point in the conversation of constitutional rights, because while I had fun with him on the radio at times, urging him to conduct a mock draft and read a Sports Illustrated article and other, he nevertheless talked about the Constitution for Hours and hours and hours, Larry Arn, and that's a good thing. Appears to know something about it, doesn't he? He does, and he's a doctor. And I, I've only once tried to teach a doctor in law school, and I learned that you can't teach a doctor anything because they already know everything. And so, but Isn't that right? It is true. I know a guy who makes a crack about trying to give investment advice to doctors. <laughs> Well, here's one thing that Rand Paul said. He said, I would have voted for the authorization for the use of military force in 2001, uh, as many people did. But he would not have understood then, and he doubted that anyone did understand then, that that authorization of use of military force could have extended to making war on Americans in America. And I think that is a very fair comment, Dr. Larry Arn. What do you think? Also, it's the function. You know, there's a... Here's a duh point. Why do we have separation of powers in the United States? We we have separation of powers because the executive is empowered to act and on his own. And unlike in the British system, which Churchill believed had had a form of separation of powers in it, the executive is not located in the legislature where it's got to answer questions every week. But that doesn't mean it has to, it doesn't answer questions. There is the oversight panel, p- power in the Congress. And, and that means you do give a power to a man to act because wars and things happen. But in a, in a system of limited government and separation of powers, there are other people to raise effective questions about that and ultimately to authorize that. I'm talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All of our weekly dialogues, most of them about great books, but some of them about a great constitution and great leaders, are available at hugh4hillsdale.com or at hillsdale.edu. And we may have to set aside uh, the father of history, Herodotus, until next week, uh, Dr. Arn, because I want to follow up on some of these things and sometimes pressing current events. uh, We can pause for a moment if you have no objection to that. That's okay. All right, Herodotus because this is great, and he'll keep. He'll keep, and we it, can talk about him for a year if we want to. Yes, and, and we may we may tease a little bit at the end. But here's here's another thing I want to bring out. You have been arguing from the beginning of the year and the start of the Hillsdale dialogues that the Republicans in Congress needed to return to something called regular order, or in other words, to the way the Constitution was intended to work in order to oppose President Obama's self-aggrandizement as an executive. That is what Senator Paul and his allies, Senator Rubio, Senator Lee, Senator Cruz, and others, have been doing. They've been resorting to regular order, which is their right to talk. It's a very good thing, but I wonder if they're discovering in this opportunities they did not imagine they had. I, I, I believe they are, and hope they are. They're, those guys you just named are pretty smart. And uh, I think, by the way, if there's a turning of the tide going on, it started last week. Because last week, people started asking questions about this sequester stuff. And, you know, what are we cutting? We're cutting 
I don't know. It's some pitiful, small, tiny percentage of the federal budget. 2.3%. Is it? What is it? 2.3%. 2.3%. Yeah, I was going to say two. So I was ungenerous to, okay. to the president. And, uh, um, and the government has to stop because of that. Now, I'll tell you something. At Hillsdale College, where the budget is not like the federal budget, this year, gifts were kind of slow, and I'm worried about the economy. And so I decided to make a budget that was 4% lower next year than this year. Now, I can tell the world, if they're wondering, we're having an actually great year this year. But, and, and we're not a fad organization. In 12 years, since I've been there 13, the college's non-faculty staff has gone up by seven people in 12 years. And if you think the new things that are happening in Hillsdale College and the size of it, that's an amazing record. And I still cut the budget 4%. And then when everything turned out to be looking really good for the year, somebody said to one of our vice presidents, they said, well, are we going to restore those cuts? And the man replied, have you met President Arnold? <laughs> <laughs> you can always cut, you know. And the federal budget, for goodness sake, I mean, the thing's an obscenity. It sounds like you've read Amity Schley's new book on Coolidge. <laughs> That's it. Very much. I haven't, but I've heard a lecture about it. And, that, and see, so people, all of a sudden, last week, people started asking questions about why it's true that we can't defend our country and people can't get through the airport lines for a cut of 2.3%. What is that about? And that is the right question. And the Republicans didn't, you know, and so the, it's worth stating the alternative to normal order, because what, what, what we've been having is the president and the press and the pundits all get together and form lots of opinions and state what they are, and enormous pressure is put, lately on the Speaker of the House especially, that he's got to go and make a deal. And they've got to agree in the Oval Office what's going to be done and then go impose it on the Congress. And the system doesn't work that way. It works the way it's been working for the last 10 days. We will be right back to continue that conversation with Dr. Larry Arnn of Hillsdale College, Q4Hillsdale.com. I'll be right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh here with 21 Minutes After the Hour. It's the last hour of the week, and I spend it when I can with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College. Hillsdale College, of course, a great sponsor and friend of my program. This is the hour of the Hillsdale Dialogue when we normally go to a great work of history. We've done the Bible and the Iliad and the Odyssey, and we were going to take up Herodotus' The History today, but we're going to probably do that next week because there's so much going on that, that plays right into the expertise of Dr. Arne as a constitutional historian and scholar. I would, however, at the start of this segment, say to the people listening that if you ever wanted to invest your treasure in an institution that will be a good steward of it and meanwhile bring you back a great return in leaders for the next century, then you ought to call up Dr. Arne at Hillsdale and say you want to come and sit down with him and talk about making an investment in the scholarship that goes on there and in making sure that young people can attend without debt burdens and that they have what they need because it comes back to you in a way that very, very few investments in higher education do. Dr. Arne, um, I, I want to go back to this idea of regular order and what the Republicans did with the sequester and what Rand Paul did this week. They also made use 
And Ted Cruz went to the floor of the Senate late Wednesday night to say, Twitter has exploded with expressions of support for Stand with Rand. And to, to a certain extent, the old regular order is greatly empowered by the new communication technologies, which you're familiar with, if the Republicans but have the courage to use them. Yeah, they need to know what they are. And uh, the reason what you just said is a profound truth is that the nature of the argument today points to what's going on in the last 10 days, and it was not going on very strongly in the presidential race. The argument is simple. Are we going to delegate the administration of things, not just the government, but most of the economy, to a professional class of people who work for the governments, federal and state, and who make decisions about the allocation of resources and, indeed, understand themselves to grant rights to us? And are we going to, is is that the way to go? Is that the way to build a modern, productive economy? And Obama's press spokesman has said pretty much that repeatedly. And the alternative is the old way, and that is a limited government making laws that apply to all on a representative basis. A limited government doesn't mean a weak government. It actually means a very strong government, but for limited purposes, following procedures that are normal and laid out in advance, indeed in advance all the way back to 1787. Those are the two alternatives. And there's huge signs in public opinion polling and in anecdotes and in the way people vote. For example, even the recent elections, the opposition party is at a high watermark in its power in state and local government, even if it's only got one of the three popular parts, properly elected parts of the federal government. So that argument, there's a reason to think that argument might prosper, but we didn't have that argument in the election. And that means we, you know, the Republicans spent $1.8 billion saying something else. And I can even tell you what they said. They said that the economy is bad and the debt's going to kill us and you have to put us in. Well, that argument about the economy is bad cuts both ways. How bad is it? You know, it's been growing. Not much, not as fast enough, not as much as it would, but it's been growing. And it leaves the implication that it is, in fact, the purpose of the government to make the economy go. Yes. And if you go back to Ronald Reagan's first inaugural address, he says, we're not going to fix the economy, we and the government. You are going to fix it. Our business is to lay down the conditions in limited government and equal property rights and equal administration of the law for all so that you can do that. Nobody made that argument. But that argument is getting made in the last 10 days, and things change when it's made. What's interesting, uh, a man I admire greatly, as you do, Rush, uh, likes to refer to low-information voters in a funny way. And I'm afraid, though, that a lot of electeds believe that there are only low-information voters. And what the Rand Paul-assisted filibuster proved is that if you make serious arguments for an extended period of time by people like Rand Paul and Mike Lee and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and their friends, not only does it make for good listening, it incites enthusiasm 
And I don't think the other party could actually carry off this kind of a filibuster because they can't make extended arguments about what they believe openly, Larry Arndt, because they are contemptuous of the very values you just articulated. Well, I think many of them are that. And they, they, you know, they're more candid now than they were five or ten years ago. Obama is a pretty candid administration compared to many, compared to Clinton, for example. But here's another thing. So to play off what you just said, which I thought was just right, elections are great civic events. And if you think of them like a football game, it's vice to go into a football game or any sports contest with the view that the only thing that matters is that you win. You have to play well. Winning is not actually in your control. And the Republicans, they argue that they they complain, or many people complain that the people don't know enough. But if you spend $1.8 billion, that's a lot of money, and you don't tell them these things, then you have passed up an enormous opportunity for civic information. And that kind of information makes clash, and then the people get a chance to choose. Whereas if you're in agreement with the basic precepts of the other guys, then, then how are they going to choose? And moreover, how are they going to find out anything? Right. right. And you, uh, you, you alluded earlier to the non-regular order where a group of elites... Uh, uh, produce a system that ends up in the Oval Office with a jam down in Congress. And not many years ago, Mark Halpern of, of Time Magazine, or ABC at the time, coined the term the Gang of 500, by which he meant, originally in jest, but then it grew serious, that there are about 500 people who decide everything in this country, and they're mostly inside of the Beltway, and some of them are in New York, and a handful of them are in Los Angeles, but they run the show, and they debate among themselves, and it's bipartisan. It's, you know, 60-40 Democrat-Republican. And that's been the way it's been done. And they don't bother to consult with people. I I like this exercise this week, Dr. Arn, because it's shattering the appearance of their monopoly on information flow. That's in. And I don't think that that monopoly has ever been there. Um, You know, it's true that the most watched media by far, I guess, for the news is still the three networks, but not nearly as much as it used to be and people get a lot of information from a lot of places and they, they you know i'm i'm a believer in free government and in representative government and in open contest contested elections and i think that people tend to make up their minds pretty well i thought romney's comment about the 47 percent which cost him a lot i think yes but at the time that it happened I just slapped the side of my head, and I thought, that's not just imprudent. That's not right. And, because... and, and he did not believe it, and that's what he said this past weekend. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. Visit Hugh4Hillsdale, H-U-G-H-F-O-R, Hillsdale.com, or go direct to Hillsdale.edu and send your friends links to these podcasts. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America, Hugh Hewitt, and the hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogues, my weekly conversation either with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College or one of his key faculty or staff, usually on a work of greatness in the Western canon. And as I said earlier in the week, we were going to talk about Herodotus and the histories. We're going to do that next week, and it's a, it, it will keep. It's kept for 2,500 years. Uh, we'll bait the hook a little bit next segment. 
Uh, you can get all of our past dialogues at hugh4hillsdale.com, as well as incredible free online courses of 40-minute lectures from Western civilization, the history of the Constitution, the progressive assault on the Constitution. Hillsdale is basically reinventing education for everyone, and they're doing it for free. All you have to do is register at hillsdale.edu or hugh for hillsdale. Uh, dot com. Dr. Arn, uh, watching the Rand Paul filibuster and what it ignited, I'm thinking ahead to the nomination by President Obama of a new head of the Environmental Protection Agency. And her name doesn't matter so much that people understand that as the head of one of the subdivisions, she's been very aggressive in implementing via regulatory diktat by fiat that which the Congress refused the Obama administration. So in many sense, she is a lawbreaker. Uh, and, and, and I wonder, do you think that the Republicans ought to begin now to plan this kind of demonstration of rhetorical forces we've seen this week with regards to the drones on a domestic policy dispute like the EPA's non-authority to do what it has been doing vis-a-vis air pollution? I think uh, lawlessness is a prime theme everywhere it crops up now in many places. And you don't have to think of anyone in particular as a despot to fear lawlessness. It's Madison's idea, expressed in beautiful language, that if the laws, he says, are so voluminous and so changeable that they cannot be read, then it doesn't really even matter if people consent to them. And these laws don't go through the ordinary process of consent. And if the law is incredibly complicated, so A, only people with $400 an hour lawyers can participate in dealing with them, but B, they are so contradictory and numerous that it breeds the spirit that you can do whatever you want and you can always find a cover for it. And so people in America, by, by large majorities, if Rasmussen and Gallup are to be believed in in uh, in uh, longitudinal polls that they've taken, both of them over a decade, people are afraid of that kind of thing. And it's the specific oversight function of government to call and to question things like that. Uh, you know, I think a very important man in the next year, has been for a few years, is uh, Daryl Issa from California, a congressman, a friend of mine. And he's done a good job with his oversight functions in the, which committee is he head of, Hugh? In the, uh, government uh, Operations. Government Operations Committee. And you've got to call them in and make them answer questions and, and make a display of it. And people will rally to that. And there are many means of communication, including the 2014 election, coming up to make a debate about these things. Now, is there a limit, though, because this is a prudential issue, the, the novelty of the Rand Paul filibuster was exciting and drew in a large audience and C-SPAN numbers exploded in Twitter. How often can you do that prudently? Well, you should do it, you, you know, it, it's not theater, it's politics. And so you do it when you feel the cause is is just. And from time to time it will break through. But in, in the normal operation of the Congress, these hearings should be about what the government is doing to the citizens. Well said. Now, in the long years of the 30s, uh, Winston Churchill, and for the benefit of people who are just tuning in, or our new audiences in places like uh, Odessa and Illinois, 
uh, uh, Dr. Arn is a Churchill scholar. How often would he take to the floor of Parliament to try and make the case against the growing threat in Europe? How, how often would he schedule a bit of theater in which to do his politics? Well, it's perfectly opposite what you asked, because there's a really great film you can watch, by the way. It's an hour and 30 minutes long, and it's directed by Ridley Scott called The Gathering Storm. And one of the things it shows is exactly what you just asked. In the early 30s, Churchill was washed up, and people weren't going to hear him, which was very unusual. And the House of Commons is the kind of place where when something important is going on, it's packed to the gills, and it won't seat everybody. So it's standing room only. And for most of his career, when he was up to talk, the place would just fill. Hold that thought, because I I want you not to be broken in mid-sentence. As we learn what Churchill can teach the Republicans about opposition, very important continuation of my conversation with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America. Last segment of my Hillsdale Dialogue this week with Dr. Larry Arn as we look back at an incredible week in the United States Congress, maybe the rebirth of successful opposition on constitutional grounds. Uh, Dr. Arn, you were saying we went to break that Churchill has a lesson for us from how he conducted himself in the 30s. And at the beginning of the decade, no one wished to hear him. And when, when in the early warnings about the growth of Hitler's power, the House would be empty. And Churchill was very discouraged. I mean, discouraged means you lost your courage, so I don't mean that. But it was horrifying to him. But he, he began to discover facts. People began to come forward. They would hear him, people he didn't know existed, and tell him things about what was known inside Germany. Some of them suffered mightily for talking with him. They were punished by the government. And soon enough, when he would stand up, the place would be teeming full, and the, and the newspapers would be full of it. And, uh, and uh, toward the end, right at the end, when it became plain that he'd been right, even about Munich, about Neville Chamberlain's famous accord to get peace in our time, and then, and then Hitler broke that accord, within a few months, all over London, billboards sprung up, uh, black letters on a white background, what price Churchill, question mark. And Neville Chamberlain couldn't go anywhere in London without seeing those billboards. And nobody to this day knows who put them up. No kidding. huh? Really? So the lesson from that is, of course, doggedness, determination. But how about the art? Did he did? What was it about his art? Did he speak at length? Did he go often, weekly, monthly? He was brilliant. He talked when, you know, he, he wasn't he wasn't in charge of the debate any more than these members of Congress and either party are events interplay to make the debate what it is. What he did was he rose when there was a reason, and that was sometimes several times a week. And, and they, they began to more and more have an impact. He would uh, discover, you know, because the, the budget has to go through in, in the House of Commons, just like in our Congress, except we don't do one in the Senate anymore. <laughs> and then how much are you going to spend on building airplanes? Because Hitler is building the ability to come and bomb us right where we live. And that's what he did. And so he, the, the budget would come up, and he would stand up, and there's a famous one where he stood up and said, uh, there's a German town, and its population has increased tenfold in a year. And what are they making there? He pauses and says, lederhosen? <laughs> Aircraft engines, you see? Yeah. And that was illegal at the time under the Treaty of Versailles. And so those, the drama is an interplay 
of the facts, of the events as they unfold, and the voice that someone is able to give to them, like Rand Paul right now. And there's also something interesting. I, I know because you have taught me, Churchill had allies. They're not as well known as, of course, the great uh, wartime leader is, but he had allies throughout the 30s. And it, it was very encouraging to watch senators act in concert uh, this week in a way that they just generally don't do. I mean, they vote as a party sometime, but this Ted Cruz coming to the floor, followed by Mike Lee coming to the floor and John Barrasso coming to the floor and Marco Rubio or Mark Kirk simply arriving with a thermos and an apple. Uh, it, it suggested the kind of collegiality that Churchill often benefited from, even though he was obviously the lead dog. I'm not declaring Rand Paul the lead dog, but I'm certainly happy to see that develop. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. And in other words, great causes make great friends. And, you know, the Democrats have a lot of, you know, think of how Henry Waxman, you know, a California congressman, how he sacrificed himself with Nancy Pelosi and them to get that health care bill through. Yeah. That you, you can't have a great debate unless you have that reciprocated and it's beginning to be one pray certainly there are signs of it as you say now there are two things i want to cover in three minutes just a hint of why we're going to talk about herodotus next week and also what your hope is for the conclave i mean it's three minutes you've got plenty of time to cover both of them oh that'll be easy um <laughs> first of all this is the first work of history it's called the history second it is the first great work of multicultural history Four ninths, four chapters out of nine, are an examination of the cultures of the Persian Empire and what they think, and a drawing of the stark contrast between them and the Greeks. And when you, when you learn what that is, it's just beautiful what that contrast is. We're going to learn what reincarnation means next week. Now, that's one thing. And the second thing is the last five of the nine chapters is one of the few greatest war stories in all of human history. Yeah. One of the greatest and best told stories of military glory there has ever been. Down to the place. It wasn't really only 300. It was actually about 4,000. And it wasn't really 3.5 million Greek, uh, Persians, probably. But it was certainly over a quarter of a million. And they stood against them for three days and humiliated them, and they would have stood against them for two weeks, except they were betrayed and another way was found around them. And the comportment of the Greeks, down to the king, who's, who leaves an inscription at the battle, go tell the Spartans, strangers passing by, that here in obedience to their laws we lie. Isn't that great? It is, it is. It's actually strange. People do not realize that this is the book from which that story, that true account comes. That's right. And, it's a, and the book itself is a tour de force. And today we're multiculturalist, but we lack the standard by which actually to, to compare culture. Herodotus, the first historian in a brilliant exposition of strange and exotic places, shows the places where they differ, finds favor with one and another and the next, but all compared against the standard of nature, the ability of human reason to see what is good. And that is coming next week, and you have one minute, your hope for the conclave? The conclave. Sorry, what's the conclave? The gathering of cardinals, a new pope. Oh, I'm sorry. They need to find, uh, the church has got many problems. So, first of all, they need to find a successor 
of John Paul II and Benedict, because those are very remarkable men. And they need, the, the church has got a lot of cleaning up to do. There's, there have been terrible scandals in it, and it's got to revive its faith, and it's got to carry on, on the, in my opinion, on the doctrinal path it's been following. More on that as well. Dr. Larry Arn, always a great pleasure, a great way to end a week. The Hillsdale Dialogues, every minute of every one of them available at hillsdale.edu. Shortcut, hugh4hillsdale.com. Coming back to conclude the week with Tarzana Joe after this. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> 